Today, we continue to work our way through Romans 12, the theme of which has been the Spirit and the church. In verses 1 and 2, Paul called us to a radical transformation, a metamorphosis from a sinner who is conformed to the passions, pursuits, principles, and pleasures of the world into a saint who is being conformed to the passions, pursuits, principles, and pleasures of God. This transformation occurs as the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to give us the mind of God that we may know and embrace the will of God and so live our lives as an offering to God, which is our continual act of worship in view of the mercies of God, which are ours through the Son of God. In other words, verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12 are essentially a concise restatement of Romans 1 through 8. And now, after a brief excursus on Israel, the church, and the sovereign election of God in chapters 9 through 11, Paul turns his attention to how this spirit-wrought transformation also transforms the church. We saw first that a transformed church is a charismatic church in verses 3 through 8. That is, it is a church in which the diverse members are gifted by the Spirit with diverse gifts that they can perform or so that they can perform diverse ministries in the power of the Spirit that otherwise they could not perform. Paul then dials in even further by exploring the fruits of the spiritual church in verses 9 to 21. In what particular ways do believers differ from unbelievers as a result of the Spirit's work in their lives? And therefore, in what ways does the church differ from the world as a result of the Spirit's presence and power among us? We've already seen that the spiritual church is a loving church in verses 9 and 10. That is, it is a church that demonstrates a righteous, affectionate, humble love for one another that cannot be found outside of the church. And we have seen that the spiritual church is an active church engaged in passionately productive ministry for the purpose of exalting Christ in verse 11. Today, we're going to look into verses 12 and 13 and unpack five exhortations which seem to share a common context. That is the context of tribulation. The spiritual church is a church in tribulation. From the very beginning, Jesus warned his disciples of the reality of tribulation throughout this present age. In John 16, he said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul warned the brand new churches of Galatia that they would endure tribulation, Acts 14, 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 
Paul sent Timothy to Thessalonica in order to establish them and exhort them in their faith. He writes in 1 Thessalonians 3, In order that no one would be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. John wrote to the churches of Asia Minor in Revelation chapter 1-9, calling himself your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And in his vision of the church triumphant in Revelation chapter 7, when he sees that great multitude that no man can count from every tribe and tongue and people and nation standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands, worshiping and singing, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. He says that one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these who are clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. All the way through the New Testament, it is clear, the church of the present age, that is the church of the spirit, the spiritual church is a church of tribulation. And this tribulation during this present age takes four main forms. First, it comes in the form of persecution. Again, Jesus told his disciples in John 16, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I have said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This tribulation also comes in the form of temptation. This is the point of John's vision in Revelation 17 of the great prostitute of Babylon, a figure that represents the pleasures of the world and of the flesh. John writes that the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And notice this, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. The tribulation comes in the form of satanic opposition. Peter, for instance, writes, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Finally, tribulation comes in the form of merely living life in a fallen body, in a fallen world that is under the curse of sin. In other words, it comes in the form of what we might call physical affliction. Romans eight nineteen, Paul writes, For the creation was subjected to futility, 
not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We might say that the church experiences tribulation in this present age from the world, the flesh, the devil, and the curse that has come upon the earth as a result of the fall of man. With all of these weapons arrayed against us, how can the saints possibly endure? Well, we have the Spirit. You remember Luther's hymn? The Spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. The spiritual church is a church of the tribulation. Yes, But the fruit of the spiritual church is perseverance through the tribulation. Jesus again told his disciples, they will deliver you up to tribulation and they will put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many will fall away and betray one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. And who is it who perseveres unto salvation? Who is it who who endures through the tribulations and the afflictions of the world, the flesh, the devil, and the curse? It's those who have the Spirit. Ephesians 1.13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of the inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. If you have received the Holy Spirit through faith in the gospel, You will never be lost. You will never fall away, but you will surely persevere through every form of tribulation to the end until you acquire possession of the everlasting inheritance, which Christ died to purchase for you to the praise of his everlasting glory. But perseverance is not some static status that you are given at conversion like a a once saved, always saved membership card. It's a dynamic quality that the Spirit produces in you through faith as you experience the various kinds of tribulation that I outlined earlier. Perseverance has color, texture, depth, It's different than the kind of grit your teeth, stiff upper lip kind of joyless misery. No, perseverance of the saints is a glorious thing to behold. The perseverance that is the fruit of the spirit is a joyful, fearless courage in the face of trials and tribulations that would break unredeemed natural men. 
This morning, we're going to look at five components of perseverance that characterize the spiritual church. In verses 12 to 13, we find that the persevering church is joyful, steadfast, prayerful, sacrificial, and hospitable. First, we see that the persevering church is joyful, even in the midst of tribulation. Paul says in verse 12, rejoice in hope. Now, this is, I think, the most counterintuitive, surprising component of spirit-wrought perseverance. Paul says that the saints do not simply persevere. They sing while they suffer. When the apostles were arrested in Acts 5 for preaching Christ in the temple, they were brought before the Sanhedrin. They were beaten and they were charged never to speak again in the name of Jesus. Then they were released. And Luke records that they left the presence of the council, catch this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced that they were beaten. They rejoiced that they were persecuted. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to be dishonored, to suffer for the sake of the name. And what did they do? Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. When Paul and Silas were in prison in Philippi, again, having been beaten with rods, with their feet fastened in stocks, they sang all night long. About midnight, Luke says, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And what was the result? The jailer, his family, and undoubtedly many of the prisoners, for they hadn't escaped, though they could have. They were converted to faith in Christ through the joyful perseverance of the saints. When the church to which the letter of Hebrews was uh, addressed, when they suffered persecution at the hands of the governing authorities, they responded with joy. The author writes, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Two points from that Hebrews text I think are of particular relevance for us. First, note that the sufferings were severe. These were not light. These were not momentary. The author of Hebrews calls it a hard struggle with sufferings. This was not, oh, they took prayer out of schools. What are we going to do? This was something intense. This was something severe. This was public reproach, imprisonment, the confiscation of their property. This was unjust suffering at the hands of a hostile public and an authoritarian state. Second, notice that their joy in the loss of their property was rooted in a future hope a better and lasting possession than that which had been taken away, namely everlasting life and everlasting joy in an everlasting kingdom. 
That is exactly the kind of perseverance that Paul points us to in Romans 12, 12. And it's what he points us to as the source of our joy in the midst of tribulation. We rejoice in hope, says Paul. We don't rejoice in the sufferings themselves. We don't pretend that pain is pleasure or that evil is good. Paul did not rejoice in the cold steel of the chains that chafed his feet, nor in the rods that ripped apart his back. He did not rejoice in the Roman prison as he shivered through the cold nights without his cloak. Likewise, the congregation of Hebrew Christians did not rejoice in the imprisonment itself as though it were a good thing to incarcerate people for rejecting idolatry and worshiping the one true God. Nor did they rejoice in the confiscation of their rightly earned property as though it were right for the state to steal the possessions of its citizens. The saints do not rejoice in the sufferings themselves. They rejoice in hope. For Paul, hope was not some generic sense that something good would happen in the future. For Paul, hope was a courageous confidence that we will inherit the glory of God. This is the way Paul has used the word thus far in Romans. For instance, in Romans 5, he writes, Through him, that is through Christ, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The hope that is the object of our joy is the glory of God. That is, it's the Conviction that one day we will inherit everlasting life and everlasting joy in the presence of God's glory. Indeed, we will share in that glory. But Paul goes on in Romans 5 and he says, not only that, not only do we rejoice in the hope of glory, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It is this hope of the glory of God that enables us to rejoice in our sufferings. And this hope exists because God has given us the spirit through whom he has poured out his love within our hearts. Notice the connection in this passage in Romans 5 between hope and joy in the midst of sufferings which is possible because of the spirit who's been given to us. There is an unbreakable chain and a link between hope, joy in sufferings, and perseverance by the spirit. The spirit produces hope. Hope sustains joy, even in the midst of suffering. But it's more than that. It is the hope of glory that not only enables us to rejoice through sufferings, 
but to rejoice even in sufferings, not in, in the pain itself, but in the midst of the sufferings because of what the sufferings are producing in us and for us, namely more glory. Suffering, tribulation, is God's ordained means of sanctifying his people. It is God's ordained means of breaking our love affair with the world and giving us the capacity to enjoy his glory forever. I think this is the way Paul thought. I think this is Paul's meaning in passages like 2 Corinthians 4.16 where he says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The purpose of suffering is to loosen our grip on the world in order that we might cling more tightly to Christ. Our suffering does not make God more glorious. You cannot add to infinite glory. Rather, our suffering refines and purifies and enables us to enjoy greater degrees of God's infinite glory. So we rejoice in the midst of our sufferings because we know, remember, we hope, we have this courageous conviction that those sufferings are increasing our everlasting capacity for eternal happiness. That is rejoicing in hope. And that is why the saints sing in the midst of their sufferings. Second, we see that a persevering church is a steadfast church. Paul says, be patient in tribulation. Now, patient is perhaps not the best translation of the Greek word Paul uses. A better translation would be steadfast endurance. In other words, what Paul is calling for is not a passive, mild patience, but an active, aggressive perseverance. It has a tenacity about it, a sense of defiance. Listen to eminent New Testament scholar Leon Morris, who says, patient may give the wrong impression. Paul's word denotes not a passive putting up with things, but an active, steadfast endurance. And something like that is needed, for affliction denotes not some minor pinprick, but deep and serious trouble. Now, we've already established that the spiritual church is a church in tribulation. And that this tribulation takes the form of persecution, temptation, satanic opposition, and physical affliction. What is required in the face of such severe threats is not mere passive resignation, mere patience. A kind of Eeyore-like gloominess that slogs through life in a puddle of depression. Laying down as the sufferings of life run you over. 
That's not what Paul's calling for. That's not what is required. What is needed is a tenacious perseverance that attacks affliction with spirit-wrought joy and spirit-wrought hope. That clings to the hope of glory with spirit-wrought strength. What I want you to think when you hear the word perseverance or endurance, both of which would be better translations of this word than patience, What I want you to think of is Charlton Heston at the 2000 NRA convention when the 77-year-old raised his flintlock long rifle defiantly in the air and announced that if then-presidential candidate Al Gore wanted his gun, he would have to peel it from his cold, dead hands. Now listen, I know that many of you resonate deeply with that sentiment. You would rather die before you would let someone strip you of your Second Amendment rights. But if you feel that strongly about guns, how much more about the hope of the gospel? The church Paul envisions is one in which every member holds up his or her Bible and declares tenaciously, aggressively, defiantly, If the world, the flesh, or the devil want my faith, my hope, my gospel, they're going to have to come and peel it from my cold, dead hands. No trial, no suffering, no ailment, no affliction, no sin will ever loosen my grip on Christ or my grip on the hope of glory. That's the kind of tenacious perseverance that endures to the end. And so is saved. Third, the persevering church is a prayerful church. Paul says in the last phrase of verse 12, be constant in prayer. John Murray writes that the measure of perseverance in the midst of tribulation is the measure of our diligence in prayer. And I think he's right. I think he's accurately grasped the connection between these three phrases in verse 12. Rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God enables us to remain tenaciously steadfast in the midst of affliction. But we will be unable to do either if we are not constant, faithful, persistent in prayer. Without exception... A persevering church is a prayerful church. Without exception, a persevering Christian is a prayerful Christian. From prayer comes the power of perseverance. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul depicts the Christian life as a fierce and ongoing battle, not with flesh and blood, but with the spiritual forces of evil and darkness. And in the face of such an enemy onslaught, Paul exhorted the Ephesian church, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. No armor, no standing firm. But having donned the spiritual armor, 
the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Having donned that spiritual armor, Paul commands us to go to war. He says in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Notice again that link between the spirit and prayer and perseverance. No spirit, no prayer. No prayer, no perseverance. Remember again back to aptat. Acknowledge, pray, trust, act, thank. Prayer stands in the middle of that model of walking by the Spirit, of accessing the Spirit's grace and power to do what otherwise is impossible, namely to bear spiritual fruit, fruit like perseverance. But we must develop the habit of constant prayer now before the tribulation comes so that when it comes, we don't We don't out of habit fall back upon our own strength, which is destined to fail. So learn church, learn how to rely daily, moment by moment, hour by hour, task by task, ministry by ministry, learn how to rely upon the spirit through prayer and faith, learn how to aptat. Then when affliction comes, you will stand firm because you'll know where to turn. The measure of perseverance in the midst of tribulation is the measure of our diligence in prayer. Fourth, the persevering church is a sacrificial church. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Again, the ESV goes a little further in its translation than it should. It tries to tell us what Paul means rather than what Paul said. Contribute is their translation of the Greek word koinoneo, from which comes the noun koinonia. And that's a word you've probably heard before. It's usually translated fellowship or participation. Therefore, what Paul is saying in verse 13 is that we are to have fellowship with the needs of the saints. We are to participate in their afflictions, their sufferings. We don't just contribute to their needs. We don't just throw money at their problems and hope that it fixes things. We enter into their burden. We share in their sufferings. That's why I chose the word sacrificial as the heading of this section. Contribute to the needs of the saints conveys a sense of distance that I don't think is present in the original Greek. I can contribute to someone's need out of my abundance without it really inconveniencing me in the slightest. But I cannot participate in their need. I can't have fellowship in their sufferings without entering into their sufferings as well. But the spiritual church shares in the sufferings of the saints. When one of us suffers, all of us suffer. When one of us is in need, we rip the shirts off our back in order to make sure that that need is met. 
The early church is a picture of this kind of sacrificial generosity. In Luke's depiction of the infant Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 2, he writes that all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They had koinonia. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And he says in Acts chapter 4, there was not a needy person among this church. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the feet of the apostles and it was distributed to any as they had need. Now, what Luke's describing in Acts 2 and 4 is is not an economic program for society at large. He's not advocating socialism. Nor is it a prescription for communal ownership in the church. The context of this remarkable and sacrificial generosity is need that was arising as a result of poverty and persecution. The point is that within the family of faith, within the church, no one went hungry and no one went homeless. Rather, the church gave sacrificially, generously, and gladly in order to ensure that every need of every saint was met. Likewise, I would say in the spiritual church today, no one should go hungry or homeless. The spiritual church is a church in tribulation, and tribulation creates need. And those needs are met by the sacrificial generosity of the spirit-filled church. First Baptist Nixa, let's be a generous church. A church that not only gives out of its abundance, but out of its poverty. A church that enters into, has fellowship with, participates in, shares in the needs and the sufferings of the saints. Let's make our model the Jerusalem church or the churches of Macedonia who Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8 were in a severe test of affliction. Nevertheless, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. The saints he's talking about are the saints who were enduring a severe famine in Judea. And I find that astounding. And not a little convicting. The churches of Macedonia, hundreds of miles away, halfway across the Mediterranean, gave out of their own tribulation. They too were in poverty. They too were suffering persecution. They too were enduring a severe test of affliction. Yet they gave in order to participate in the tribulation of the saints in Judea. Saints that they had never even met. May God give us the same grace that he gave to them. Finally, we find that the persevering church is a hospitable 
church. Paul concludes verse 13 and says, and seek to show hospitality. Literally, Paul says, pursue, follow after. It's the same word that usually is translated persecute. It's, a, it's another aggressive term. Pursue hospitality. In other words, Don't just sit back and let the saints come to you. Don't just sit back and let suffering strangers come to you. Seek them out. Don't don't wait for opportunities to arise. Pursue them. Now, what's the connection, you may ask, between hospitality and tribulation, which I said was the context for these five exhortations in verses 12 and 13? Well, The word translated hospitality literally means loving strangers, philoxenia, the love of strangers. The early church often endured persecution during which their property would be confiscated like the church of the Hebrews in Hebrews 10.34. And oftentimes they would be exiled and compelled to migrate to a new home. Well, where would such people go when their homes were taken away from them? Where would they live? Well, they would go to the saints in other cities. And those saints would willingly and gladly open their homes to them. Though they were strangers, they were brothers. They were family. And they were loved for the sake of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. We often use the word hospitality to denote what the, what the Bible simply refers to as fellowship. That is, having those we already know and already love into our homes. And that's okay. Fellowship is good and necessary and healthy for a church. It's just not what Paul's calling for in this verse. Paul is calling for philoxenia, love of strangers. He's calling us to open our homes, not only to those we know, but especially to those we don't know. And especially in times of tribulation and affliction, times of suffering and need. If you want to obey Paul's command, think of someone you don't know, someone who's hurting, someone who's undergoing affliction and invite them over. Share your home, share a meal, share your heart, share your life. Open homes and open hearts. Those are the marks of a spiritual church. Why does God afflict his children? Why does he send them through trials and tribulations? Why is the spiritual church, the church of this present age, a church in tribulation. Why would God allow such a thing? Well, Peter tells us, he says, in this hope, you also rejoice though. Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Tribulation reveals and refines our faith. 
There is simply no other way to demonstrate the authenticity of our profession of faith than through tribulation. There is simply no other way to refine and purify and strengthen our faith than by going through the fire. So what does genuine faith look like when it is tested by tribulation? What does trial by fire reveal in the spiritual church? It reveals a faith that is joyful because it is anchored in the infallible hope of glory, is steadfast, tenaciously clinging to Christ in his word, is prayerful, relying upon the grace and strength of the spirit to endure, is sacrificial, participating in and contributing to the needs of the saints, even at great cost to ourselves, and is hospitable, opening our hearts and our homes to strangers in need. And for that kind of faith, you must have the spirit. John Patton was a 19th century Scottish missionary to the New Hebrides, which is modern-day Vanuatu in the South Pacific. And his spectacular autobiography is a must-read for every missionary, perhaps even for every Christian. And in this autobiography, he wrote about his early experience on the island when he was hunted by cannibals and he was hiding throughout the night in a chestnut tree. I might mention, if, if you think you're undergoing tribulation, it might do us good to read the accounts of Patton and what he endured in the early years of his missionary journeys. I want to read to you a paragraph from his book, which was written many years later as he was reflecting back upon those early years. And I want you to note what it was that enabled him to persevere in faith. Patton writes, The hours I spent hiding in that chestnut tree live all before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree in order to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? Beloved, if you are to persevere in the faith through every trial and every tribulation that the world, the flesh, the devil, and the curse will throw your way, you need to know Christ like that. You need to know Christ really, truly, and infinitely. And if you're to know Christ really, truly, and intimately, you must know him by the Spirit. 
So I ask you the same question that Patton posed in his autobiography. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend who will not fail you then? The spiritual church is a church that can endure anything through the spirit who's been given to us. Do not be content with a cold, passionless, spiritless Christianity. Such a faith will not endure to the end, and it will not be saved. Like the second soil in Jesus' parable, when the sun of tribulation rises high in the noonday sky, that false spiritless Christianity will be scorched and it will wither away. Beloved, don't settle for the counterfeit. Get the real thing. Go to Christ. He died to take away your sin. He rose again to call you out of death and into new and real and joyful life. Trust him. And cry out to him because he gives the spirit to those who ask him.